0: All right, guys, we're going to get into the Word today. And we're going to share with you maybe the, the last little piece as we've been casting vision for 2024. I want to share the, the last little piece today. So the sermon is titled, Call to the Harvest, which harvest is already one of our words that we have introduced this year. And we have another set of words Obviously, you can peek ahead at the notes, and you can already see what they are. But we have another set of words that started coming in as we were gathering as a leadership team. They were coming in separately. They were coming from different people. One person said this word. One person said this word. And when the dust settled, what I really felt is that these three words all went together, not only as a prophetic vision, but as a prophetic strategy for us to move forward in the harvest. And so that's what we're going to do today. If you have your notes, which are in the bulletin, they're in our church app, they're attached to this video if you're watching the digital campus, and they're also attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. Here's our big picture point today. Gathering the harvest in 2024 is going to require a different mindset and a different set of skills for followers of Jesus than it has in the past. All right, that's what we're going to get after today. Gathering the harvest in this day, in this time in history, is going to require a shift in us. And I want to begin to to talk about that shift. And I want to begin by maybe just being a little bit transparent uh, and sharing my heart a little bit. We are in year seven of, of, of Shannon and I being here at Kauai Bible Church And that's why we're taking a sabbatical this year, because we believe biblically that the seventh year is the sabbatical year. And so we are in year seven. And I just feel like something is different. I don't want to say it's the first time that I'm leading us into something new, because let's be honest, we went through a pandemic together, okay? Everything was new. So, it's not that it's the first time that I'm leading us into something new. It's just I can't even put a word to it. It just feels different. I've taken the month of January every year that I've been the pastor here to to declare vision and to cast vision. A lot of years it didn't go real well, people left or I got angry emails. But this year feels different. It feels like we're moving into a season of destiny. You know, it feels like maybe this is an Esther moment and such a time as this moment. But I've got to be honest with you. If you had told me in 2017, when I was praying about coming here and, and being a part of this church, if you had told me that it would be in year seven, that it felt like we were moving into this moment of destiny, I would have said to you, no way. That's way too long. I got too many things to do. I got too many dreams, man. I can't wait till year seven. And if you had told me in 2017, when I was praying about this, that not only would it take until year seven, but that in the six years before it, all I would do is shrink the church, I would have said, no way. I'm a builder, man. We're going to build this thing. It's Right? And yet here we are in year seven and I don't regret one bit of it because in these seven years, man, God has shaped me and changed me. And it's not that my dreams aren't big, it's just that they're different and they look different. Why am I sharing this? Because I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Todd Bolsinger. And Todd Bolsinger is a pastor, but he's also a seminary professor specifically around the area of church leadership. And as I was reading, he was talking about a shepherd leading the flock into a new place, a new season, a new moment. And he says, in order for the shepherd to do that, the church has to trust him in three areas— Three areas, that he has to be a faithful steward in three areas. The first one is in the word of God or in sound doctrine. You have to trust that I rightly divide the word of truth, that I preach the full counsel of the word of God, that, that I exegete it properly, that I interpret it properly, and that I give you good truth and good sound doctrine. You've got to trust that I do that. The second area that the church has to be able to trust the shepherd is in the care of people's souls. And I would say that of these three things I'm talking about right now, this is the one that I failed the most at early on. And this is the one that I hurt people in early on because I wanted to go somewhere before I showed everybody that I cared about them. And, and that was the area that God had to work on me and change me and deal with me. And so, looking back, I would say that it wouldn't be until these last couple of years that you guys could trust me, that I care for your souls. And that's what's most important as we move forward. Not an agenda, not a dream, not a plan, not a program, not a structure, but your soul's. And then the third area is actually the least spiritual of them. You have to trust that I know what I'm doing as a leader, right? That I can lead teams, that I can operate an organization, that I have the the technical competence uh, to lead. And so here we are in year seven. And I'm asking if you guys trust me in these three areas that we can move into this moment of destiny And that you would trust me to lead you into a new place. Now, why do I say a new place? Well, I want to introduce a word to you, and that word is Christendom. And I put the definition in your notes What is a Christendom? A Christendom is a culture where Christianity prevails as the dominant belief system, where Christian biblical values are the accepted norm, and where churches and church leaders are viewed as pillars of the community. So let's talk about this idea of Christendom in light of church history. In the first days of the church, in the book of Acts, no Christendom existed, right? Because at that point, no church had ever existed. Christian values had never existed. And so that first church of the book of Acts, as it began to spread the gospel, did so in a hostile environment. And for approximately the first 300 years of the history of the church, they continued to advance the kingdom of God in a hostile environment. A culture that did not like them, that did not accept them, a culture that persecuted them, that opposed them. And then something changed. Constantine, the emperor of Rome, gave his life to Jesus. And in 313 A.D., he declared the end of Christian persecution in Rome. Then in 325 AD, he convened the Council of Nicaea, which is where we get the Nicene Creed, which is where the church was able to unify its beliefs and stand behind this is who we are as a church. And then shortly after that, the church became the state religion of Rome. Now, Honestly, there's probably a lot of negative things that came, you know, I don't ever want the church to be the state religion of any country. That's not the purpose of the church. But I just want you guys to understand that that's where Christendom started. When the church of Jesus Christ became the state religion of Rome, that was the first Christendom. Now, 1,700 years later, the Western world, which we would define the Western world as Western Europe, and then eventually Western Europe conquered North and South America, right? So that's the Western world. That for 1,700 years, the Western church in the Western world operated in a Christendom. We operated in a culture where Christianity was the prevailing belief system. Christianity was honored. Its values were honored, for 1,700 years, until about 25 years ago. And now, we no longer live in a Christendom. The culture, not only of the United States, but even of many of those same Western European nations has moved away from a Christendom. Why does this matter? Because we have to function differently, right? In a Christendom, all we have to do is put on a great church service every Sunday. And as long as we keep putting on a great church service every Sunday, people are going to eventually show up because everybody has a positive view of the church and eventually they decide, you know, we want to raise our kids in church and and church is a good place to be. And when people show up to church in general, they know what's going on. And as church members, maybe the most difficult thing we have to do is invite people to church. And then if we invite them to church... They'll hear about Jesus from the professional, and and everything will be awesome, right? That's how church functions in a Christendom. We're not in a Christendom anymore. The culture has shifted away from the church. It probably started 30 years ago or so, but it's taken us a while to really notice that now the culture is hostile towards the church. Now people don't have a genuinely or a generally positive view of the church, The church has, in some ways, embarrassed itself publicly, right? We have wagged our finger at sexual sin in the ungodly culture, and yet we haven't been willing to deal with it within our own walls. And we've had so many big leaders, famous names, that have fallen into sexual sin. The church has aligned itself with politics which is not what the church was ever meant to do. So there are some ways that the church has embarrassed itself within the culture. But the culture no longer embraces Christian values. People are no longer just going to come to church just because it seems like the right thing to do. In today's culture, people think that playing soccer or baseball on a Sunday morning is going to build their kid's character more than bringing them to church. Right? Are you guys following me? Which means that the Western church today, we can now relate to the church in the book of Acts more than any Western church before us. Because we are now operating in the same environment as the original church in the book of Acts. We are operating in a culture that is hostile to what we believe, that is opposed to our values, that doesn't respect who we are as an institution we are no longer in Christendom. And that's why it's going to take a, mind, uh, a shift in our mindset and our behaviors. Because now, the hardest thing we're going to have to do is not just invite people to church. Because now, if you just invite people to church, most of the time, they don't come. What does that mean? Well, because they don't have a generally positive view of the church. What that means is, is we're going to have to reach them differently now. I wanna share with you about Lewis and Clark and their core of discovery. If you guys are familiar with the Lewis and Clark expedition that took place from approximately 1803 to 1806, uh, they were commissioned by the US government, if I'm not mistaken, it was Thomas Jefferson who commissioned them. Now, of course, for explorers, their passion is in discovery, right? But for the governments that commission them, their passion is economy right? Think about all the explorers, even James Cook, right? They were commissioned by a government who had economy in mind. And so the U.S. government had economy in mind. They believed that there was a water route that could take them from the Mississippi River all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And if they could establish and map that route and control it, then they could control all of the trade coming into the continental North America, right? Right? So they commissioned Lewis and Clark. Why? Because Lewis and Clark were known as the greatest river navigators in America. And this is what they thought. They thought if they could find the Missouri River where it branches off from the Mississippi and they could track it all the way to its source, that at its source it would connect with possibly the Columbia River, which would go all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And so you had these river navigators and their team, and they were perfectly equipped to navigate rivers. They were going to find the river course from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean. But something went wrong. Anybody want to venture a guess as to what went wrong? The Rocky Mountains. That's what went wrong. Nobody thought the Rocky Mountains would get in the way. I want you to hear this journal entry from Meriwether Lewis on May 26, 1805. He said, in the after part of the day, I also walked out and ascended the river hills, which I found sufficiently fatiguing. On arriving to the summit of one of the highest points in the neighborhood, I thought myself well repaid for my labor. As from this point, I beheld the Rocky Mountains for the first time. I could only discover a few of the most elevated points above the horizon. These points of the Rocky Mountains were covered with snow, and the sun shone on it in such a manner as to give me the most plain and satisfactory view. While I viewed these mountains, I felt a secret pleasure in finding myself so near the head of the heretofore conceived boundless Missouri River. But when I reflected on the difficulties which this snowy barrier would most probably throw in my way to the Pacific and the sufferings and the hardships of myself and the party in them, it in some measure counterbalanced the joy I had felt in that moment. I want you to hear Lewis. Seeing the Rocky Mountains was beautiful. He was filled with joy. But at the same time, he realized things were about to get incredibly difficult. Why? Because these river navigators were going to have to become mountaineers. The skill set that had brought them this far wasn't going to get them where they needed to go. They were going to have to learn a new skill set on the fly. And, of course, we know the end of the story. They did. And they found the Columbia River and they established the Oregon Trail and they made it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But I want to talk to us today about having to transition from river navigators to mountaineers. About us embracing the reality that all the skills we learned in the past that got us to this point are not the skills that we need to get us to the next point. We need a shift in mindset. We need to learn new skills Are you hearing me today? Christopher Wright said this. He said, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Right? We always talk about what is our mission? Well, it's God's mission, and it's never changed. We just happen to be the instruments that he wants to use to fulfill it. And the mission hasn't changed. It's to seek and to save the lost. It's to be disciples who make more disciples to advance the kingdom of God. It's so that heaven would get bigger and hell would get smaller. That's the mission. The mission doesn't change. What has to change is the instrument. It's us. We have to be willing to do things differently to reach a world that is no longer in Christendom. So we start from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We all know this. Come on. We are a charismatic church. You have got to know Acts 1-8 if you're a charismatic church. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Now as a charismatic church, we always focus on the receive power from the Holy Spirit. And yes, that's important, but that's not what I want to preach today. And of course, we've been talking about the remotest parts of the earth, right? We want to touch the ends of the earth. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about that one word in the middle. And that word is witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. What does it mean that we are his witnesses? And what is our responsibility? And you can see in your notes, I want to give you three responsibilities right now what it means to be witnesses. Yes, full of the Holy Spirit and power, and yes, starting with our neighbors and going as far as we can, but right in the middle, we've got to be witnesses. 1 John chapter 1, this is how John introduces his first letter to the churches that he was the apostle over. He said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning who? The word of life. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. What did you hear in there? We are responsible for what we have seen and heard. Right? We are responsible to tell people what we have seen and heard. Now John was an eyewitness of Jesus. He walked with him right, for three years. He touched Jesus physically. He saw him with his own eyes. He heard him with his own ears. And so his responsibility was to testify to what he had seen and heard as an eyewitness of Jesus. Well as witnesses we have the same responsibility. We are responsible to share what we have seen and heard. What does that mean? That means we're not responsible for somebody else's story or somebody else's experience. We're responsible for our story and our experience. What have you seen and heard in Jesus? How has God touched your life? What are the miracles that you've seen? How has God spoken to you? What are the promises he's given you in your life? How has he been faithful to those promises? Are you guys with me? We are responsible to tell people what we have seen and heard. That's the what. Let's listen to Peter. 1 Peter 3.13. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be in dread, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you but with gentleness and respect, and keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So we're responsible for the what? We're also responsible for the why. We are responsible as witnesses to tell people why we believe. Peter says, Always be ready to give a defense for your faith. Always be ready to tell people why you put your hope in Jesus. Now, we're, we're all probably pretty familiar with that verse. The reason that I wanted to read the verse before it and the verse after it is I wanted you to hear the context that Peter is talking about a hostile context. He's talking about people that want to slander you, that want to persecute you, that want to question your faith, that want to believe that you're a phony. And in a hostile context, we are responsible to share our why. Why do we put our hope in Jesus? So we're responsible for the what? We're responsible for the why? Let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 10. We know it well as explaining salvation, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the mouth one makes confession unto righteousness, and with the heart one believes unto salvation. And then Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in verse 14... He says, "How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? and how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, "How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things?" However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed our reports?" So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The third thing we're responsible for is the how. We have to tell people how to receive salvation. If we don't tell them, how are they going to know? Right? So we're responsible for the what, we're responsible for the why, and we're responsible for the how. We have got to be able to tell people how they can come to know Jesus as their Savior. And then I love what Paul says. He says faith comes by hearing. Right? And so how are we going to get a hostile world to listen to our message? We speak the message of the Word of Christ, and their faith will come because they hear it. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Right? So faith is not just the response to hearing the gospel. Faith is actually activated by hearing the gospel. And so the only way that we are going to turn somebody's heart who is hostile to us is to speak the word of Christ. And it is the word of Christ that will turn their hearts. I want to read this passage to you. It's kind of long, so I don't know how many slides it's on, Mason. But uh, this is a theologian, Robert Mounts, talking about this idea of faith comes by hearing. He says, Although it is true that faith is our response to the gospel, it is also true that the message itself awakens and makes faith possible. God is at work even in our response to his gracious offer of forgiveness. The message is heard through the word of Christ. That is, it's Christ himself who speaks when the gospel is proclaimed. All effective preaching is accomplished by God himself. The messenger, that's us, is at best merely the instrument used by the Holy Spirit as a necessary part of the process. It is God's own voice that confronts the sinner and offers reconciliation. Right? We put too much pressure on ourselves. What if I fail? What if I'm not good enough? If you're speaking the words of Christ, it's not on you. Because when you're speaking the words of Christ, it's God through the Holy Spirit that is speaking to that person's heart, and that is the only thing that will change their hearts. No eloquent speech or presentation from the go- of the gospel from you is going to change their hearts. You simply being an instrument for the word of Christ is what's going to bring faith alive in people who maybe don't have a positive view of the church, who maybe don't have a positive view of you, who maybe weren't looking for Christian values. But when you speak the word of Christ, something comes alive in them. So what are we responsible for as witnesses? We're responsible for the what, the why, and the how. What have you seen and heard? Why do you believe? And how can they receive salvation? So what that means is, is now moving forward, our job is no longer to invite people to church. You're like, well, wait a minute. How are they going to get to church? I'll get to that in a minute. Our job now is to be witnesses in a non-Christendom world by sharing the what, the why, and the how. And that's where these three words come in. Like I said, these three words came from three different people in our leadership meeting. And so, you know, at first it was like, well, we have to pick one. Whose word do we like the best? And then suddenly it became clear, we don't have to pick one All three words go together. And these words are testify, share, reach. Testify, share, reach. So, testify, that means tell your story. As often as you can, in as many places as you can, tell your what. What have you seen and heard? What is your story? What has been your experience? The most powerful thing about your story is that nobody can take it away from you, and nobody can question it. They can question your theology. They can question your ideology. They can question your philosophy. They can question all of those things, but they can't question your story because your story is real. Share your story, right? So I am calling us, Kauai Bible Church, to testify. I am challenging us to start sharing our story in as many places as we possibly can. And I will tell you this. I am praying about, and it hasn't materialized yet, but I am praying about creating a way for all of us to be more effective at telling our story, especially in this digital age. That's a little trailer right there. I'm not going to tell you any more until we've got it for reals. But this year is going to be all about testify. It's going to be all about us sharing our story. Amen? The second word is share. What does share mean? It means contextualize the gospel. I know contextualize is a fancy word, but it just means put the gospel in the context of the person you're talking to. Right? Right? I was at a conference this week in Oahu, and uh, um, there was an evangelist from Ghana. I mean, he was a Howley guy from the mainland, but he was in Ghana as an evangelist. That's where his ministry called him to. And, uh, and so he shared at this conference, and like any good evangelist... He got to shouting, right? Because that's what evangelists do. And so he was shouting and he was getting all fired up. But in the midst of his shouting, he shared something that I just thought was profound about contextualizing the gospel. And that is he went through the four gospels in the Bible and how each one of those writers contextualized the gospel. Think about this. Matthew was the most Jewish of the four gospels. So Matthew's context was the Jewish people. So if you read the gospel of Matthew, he contextualized the gospel by declaring Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. And then we go to Mark. What was Mark's context? His context was unbelievers in Rome. Well, what were Roman people all about? They were all about power and action. So when you read the gospel of Mark... He contextualizes Jesus as a man of power and action, right? One of the most common words you read in the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately. Then immediately Jesus did this. Then immediately Jesus did this. Then immediately Jesus did this. That was the context. Then you've got Luke. What was Luke's context? Well, Luke was a physician and a historian. He was commissioned by somebody who was in the aristocracy, So his context was, I don't even know how to put it, right? Highfalutin people? I don't know. The upper class? Sophisticated people, right? People that put their pinky out when they hold their teacup. So what did Luke do? He presented Jesus as the perfect man, the second Adam. And then John who was the apostle over uh, the region of Ephesus, which was one of the seats of Socratic philosophy. And Socrates actually used the word Logos to represent the God mind, this kind of universal, impersonal idea of God. So what does John do? He declares that Jesus is the Logos and that Jesus is the Son of God, the Logos made flesh. Are you guys feeling me? Every one of the writers contextualize the gospel for who they were writing to. And so when I say share the gospel, we need to ask ourselves, how do we contextualize the gospel in our time and our culture? Right? We've got one gospel script that asks people, if you're going to die today, do you know if you're going to go to heaven or hell? Well, that might work for some people, but it might not work for others. You've got to figure out how do you engage people in the context that they are in. David Canastraci, which many of us know, he's been a big influence on our church, he was also at the conference, and he talked about in this godless culture that we are in, maybe the biggest open door we have is people's pain because they have followed a lie, and that lie has left them empty and in pain. And so maybe the best way we contextualize the gospel is not to say that Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell, but maybe we can say that Jesus is the healer. And the lies that have caused you to be in pain, I've got the truth that will heal your pain. Are you guys hearing me? So we have got to share the gospel. And then finally, we have to reach people. What do I mean by reach people? I mean bring them into fellowship. So that means we're no longer inviting people to church with the hopes that they're going to hear about Jesus from a professional. No, now we're being witnesses. We're telling our story. We're contextualizing the gospel. We're leading people to Jesus. And then when we lead them to Jesus, we bring them into fellowship. You guys get the difference between that and inviting people into church? Going back to 1 John that we just read a few minutes ago, verse 3, he said, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. The proclamation of the gospel comes first, and then we reach them and bring them into fellowship. What is fellowship? It's shared community. It's unity in belief. So it means we lead people to salvation and then we bring them into covenant community with us here in the church. I want to read another excerpt for you. Sorry, today is the day of long excerpts. But I want to read this excerpt from Dr. Yoon Strausser. Dr. Yoon Strauser lives on Oahu. She is a medical doctor similar to Dr. Sharon that we know here on Kauai. She is a pediatrician and also practices neuromuscular medicine in Kailua on Oahu. She also pastors a church on Oahu. And she also leads a multiplication movement. And on top of all of that, she found time to write a book. And I want to read you an excerpt from her book. She says, discipleship, simply put, is to imitate Jesus so that both our spiritual confidence and our social competence matures. We've never really thought about that, right? We just think that discipleship means we get more spiritual. But what if discipleship means that we also grow in social competence? We get better at connecting with people. We grow and participate in the maturity of both our Christ-like identity and our Christ-like practice. We both know and love God and also participate in what God is doing in, around, and through us in our neighborhoods, communities, and cities. And then listen to what she says about this shift, and this is the shift I'm talking about today. She says this shift will unveil the church's role in providing environments where people are imitating Jesus together in community, right? So that's the first part, and that's what we're going after, right? We are in covenant community, and we're trying to become imitators of Jesus. Trying is the wrong word. By the grace of God, we are becoming imitators of Jesus. But why? For ourselves? No, for the sake of renewal in their neighborhoods and cities. The church will be a community of people that imitates who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And a community that meets deeply its neighbor's sense of belonging and purpose will undoubtedly multiply imitators of Jesus. That is the shift. We're shifting from, hey, we gather in church and we love our church, and as long as we keep having a good church service, people are gonna keep showing up. We're shifting away from that to saying that in church, we are raising up a covenant community of discipleship where all of us, by the grace of God, are becoming more and more imitators of Jesus, imitators of who He is and imitators of what He does. And by doing that, our social competence in connecting with a lost world increases, and we begin to meet people's needs for belonging and purpose. And when we do that... They give their lives to Jesus, and we bring them into fellowship, and the church grows and expands, and we screw in more light bulbs. Come on. Let me have the worship team come back up today. We're responsible for the what's, we're responsible for the why, and we're responsible for the how. We are responsible, full of the Holy Spirit, to go into our community and be his witnesses. And now we no longer just invite people to church in hopes that they show up. No, we are the ministers of reconciliation. We reach them right where they're at, and then we bring them into fellowship through the gospel. My last quote, I think it's in your notes. John Stott is an Anglican theologian, and he breaks down Romans chapter 10 like this Christ sends heralds, that's us, heralds preach. People hear. Hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. Come on, that's is what the church is supposed to be doing. We are sent, we preach, people hear, when they hear, they believe. When they believe, they call, and when they call, they're saved, and when they're saved, they come into fellowship. Thank you, Jesus. Will you stand with me today? We are river navigators that are becoming mountaineers. We are people that have been raised up in church in Christendom, suddenly finding ourselves no longer in Christendom. And everything we did to make the church what it is today is not what we need to do to make it what it will be tomorrow. We have to shift away from the invite people to a professional setting mode, and we have to shift into witness mode, where we will testify, share, and reach And then they will come into church and be a part of this multiplying community of discipleship. Jesus, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for speaking to the hearts of our leadership team that these three words came together by your will and your purpose, Lord. And I thank you for your will and your purpose in this process, God. So, Father, use these three words to shape us as we walk into 2024 and beyond. Holy Spirit, fill us. There is no strategy that works without your power, Holy Spirit. So you fill us. You empower us. And Lord, we will be your witnesses. We will be your instruments that the power of God can work through us when we speak your gospel out loud. So Lord, equip us with our story. Equip us with our why. Equip us with the how. And then Lord, use our words to confront the hearts of people. Thank you, Lord, for all that we have celebrated today. The harvest is happening at Kauai Bible Church. It's year seven. It's a moment of destiny. We're stepping into something new. So call us to be mountaineers today, Lord. Give us the courage and the strength to be who we need to be in this new season. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, can we sing a celebration song right now? Can we just wrap up this day of celebration by rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing in the vision that God has called us to?